0: Welcome to Canada's most irreverent talk show. This is The Andrew Lawton Show, brought to you by True
1: North. Coming up, a human rights commission says you don't have the right to fire a convicted pedophile. The British government puts political correctness above the rule of law. And could a national popular vote save American conservatism?
0: The Andrew Lawton Show starts
1: right now. Hey everyone, welcome along to another edition of the Andrew Lawton Show here on the front lines of freedom, or so we like to think sometimes. Although today, very much so against the freedom... The freedom uh, killers that exist in government right now, uh, not letting you fire someone for being a convicted pedophile. This is not where I thought the freedom frontier would lead us, but it's where we are right now. A decision from the Manitoba Human Rights Commission has found that you are not allowed to discriminate against someone on the basis of them being convicted of heinous sexual crimes against children. Now, this really comes back to a University of Manitoba case where a man who's only identified as AB was fired after the university learned that he had been convicted of touching two children for a sexual purpose and also of making child pornography. He served jail time and he's got a lifetime ban from places where children under the age of 14 are likely to be present. So the university fired the man and restricted his access to completing his education at the university. It sounds like he had some agreement where tuition was part of him as employment or or something like that. I don't know for sure. But we do know that he launched a complaint in 2015, but the university objected because they said, uh, you know what, you do not have the right to not be discriminated against based on your criminal record under Manitoba law, which is true. But here's where it gets tricky, because he went to the Human Rights Commission, which has now granted him the right to contest his firing. So it doesn't sound like he's been immediately reinstated just yet. But they've said that they will accept the complaint, because this is, I think, the most egregious part of this. The adjudicator of this panel, who's a government appointment, says that Criminal records are not specifically listed in the human rights code, but it should be protected by the code. So you've got two injustices here. You've got, on one hand, the fact that a child pornographer and convicted pedophile apparently is owed an employer that's going to overlook these facts about him. But also you've got these unelected bureaucrats in the human rights kangaroo court system that are openly saying, you know what, this is not in the law, but we wish it were in the law, so we're going to act as though it is. And that's insane. I mean, imagine if a judge were, and don't get me wrong, I have my fair share of issues with judges sometimes, but if judges were to say, you know, we we think this should be illegal, so we're going to prosecute you as though it is illegal. And you're like, well, hang on, I I broke a law that, that isn't actually on the books. So they're pointing to the fact that other jurisdictions in Canada have a prohibition on discrimination based on criminal record, but Manitoba doesn't. And for that matter, the university has said its issue is not that someone has a criminal record. I don't think they'd have an issue with a guy who, you know, maybe stole a pack of gum from the variety store a, a few years ago. They're saying that children are on that campus all the time, minors are on the campus... And they don't think that someone who is a convicted child pornographer is necessarily the kind of guy you'd want around these children on a day-to-day basis, which seems like a pretty reasonable proposition to me. Now, look, I am a firm believer in second chances. I'm a firm believer in forgiveness. I'm also a believer in the right to freedom of association. That includes for businesses to have the freedom to determine, hmm, maybe we do not want a guy convicted of kiddie porn on our campus. And... This does not seem to be unreasonable. Why are you denied the right to make that call? And this is why human rights commissions and human rights tribunals across the world are so dangerous because they oftentimes put this victim mentality as being the the primary role of importance that you could have in your life, to be a victim, and this trumps anyone's free speech rights, this trumps anyone's freedom of association, this trumps all of these other factors. If you can say, no, 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 I'm a victim of discrimination, that's the most powerful thing that you can be in 2020. So here's a guy who is uh, facing so-called discrimination because a campus-decided this guy should not work here. And they've now invented a new provision in law, which now is precedent. This is now the precedent. Now anyone else who goes through this can say, ah, but in this case, uh, you know, Manitoba versus AB or University of Manitoba versus AB, they've determined that this is now the way things go. This is not a real court. These are not real judges. These are not real adjudicators. These human rights bureaucrats are the same people that went after Ezra Levant and Mark Stein and the same type of people that have gone after those who say things they don't like because this is what the regime allows them to do. It allows you to set a standard that is lower than any criminal threshold but high enough that these bureaucracy, these kangaroo court bureaucrats can go after you. And people have to stop empowering these things. Governments have to stop giving them legitimacy. All of the people that sit on these panels are appointed by the government of the day. And in Manitoba, this is a conservative government that's appointed at least some, perhaps all of the adjudicators on this panel. Same as the uh, BC Human Rights Tribunal, the Ontario Human Rights Commission, the Canadian Human Rights Commission, all of these human rights commissions that have prosecuted people on so-called hate speech, they have been appointed by politicians. And in many cases, conservative politicians who, despite saying the right things on free speech, haven't actually done anything about this regulatory regime that allows them to target that allows governments to target people on the grounds of speech. And I don't know where this is going to go moving forward. I mean, the whole point that I thought we were past this was when the Wax My Balls case in British Columbia happened, when uh, Jessica Yaniv or Jonathan Yaniv, Jessica, a.k.a. Jonathan, or Jonathan, a.k.a. Jessica, was demanding that all of these waxing parlors were waxing her testicles and her testicles, as I, I believe Mark Stein had said, are two words you don't expect to hear together. But uh, demanding that all of these different waxing parlors and independent people waxing in their home demanding that they wax her testicles, and the result of this was the Human Rights Tribunal saying, "Okay, we kind of think you're trying to weaponize this. We think that you're going too far," and. This didn't even strike a blow to the end of these commissions. This was not enough to put an end to the extraordinary power that these commissions have over individual people's lives. This was just an anomaly. Oh, okay, well, yeah, that, I mean, that was bad, but, but no, 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 there, there's real anti-discrimination work that's being done by these commissions, folks, and we've got to keep them going, and we've got to keep giving them all this power and all this license. So I don't know if A.B., is at all reformed in the sense of having moved beyond uh, the things that got A, B arrested, charged, convicted, and imprisoned in the first place. But what I do know is that a vast majority of people would be uncomfortable working alongside someone who is, as a matter of law, a convicted pedophile. And someone would be very unhappy about sending their child to a university knowing that there is going to be a convicted pedophile who is in the staff of the university. And we don't know the job. We don't know if they're a janitor. We don't know if they're a professor. No idea. And it doesn't really matter all that much. For the state to say that employers do not have the right to decide for themselves whether they want to associate with someone like that is for the state to say that you do not have the right in your own life, basically, to set boundaries that will extend to your place of employment if you're an employer. And look, imagine if this were a small business owner. Imagine if this were a little coffee shop owner, not a, a university that's publicly funded, a coffee shop owner that said, oh, you know what, I'm, I'm not comfortable. Uh, you know, my child was uh, abused by someone. I'm not comfortable hiring someone who's been convicted of sexually touching children. And the state says, oh, nope, that's discrimination. You can't do that. You cannot say that. It would be horrible. And oftentimes the people that lose the most to these human rights bureaucracy kangaroo courts are people that don't have the means to fight back. I'm not sympathetic with the University of Manitoba because I care about the University of Manitoba. I'm sure it's a fine place. I don't know anything about it. The reality is I'm concerned about the precedent that this decision by the Manitoba Human Rights Commission is setting, given that all of these uh, government agencies in Canada like to look to each other, which is what happened here. Manitoba said, oh, well, we see other provinces are doing this. So so we're going to do this now. And then another province is going to look to Manitoba and say, oh, oh, OK, well, they've protected this guy's rights and he's a convicted pedophile. So we're going to, to now try to do this ourselves." And eventually you've got these unelected adjudicators passing things into law that were never actually passed into law by anyone elected because they've decided to read meaning into these things that was never put there by legislators. And look, I would love, I mean, not that I would like it if legislators put it there, but at least you'd have the ability to oppose it if someone that you could vote out of office put it in versus someone that most people have never heard of, are never going to hear of, and someone that no one can get rid of. I mean, the people here, you can't vote out if you're a taxpayer, if you're a citizen that cares about this. These people are, and I don't like using the term deep state excessively, but these are the people that are there regardless of who's in power because no one throws them out. People just give them complete free reign to do whatever they want. And you have to say no, not just for the immediate implications of not being able to say, I do not trust a pedophile. But for the broader implications, if I do not want the government telling me who I can or cannot hire and imposing, imposing the heavy arm of the state's power on me to make the determination that the government wants me to make, which is rarely going to be the right decision, folks. It's rarely going to be the good call when the government's the one making it. In any case, we've got to take a break. When we come back, more of The Andrew Lawton Show. Stay tuned
0: tuned in to The Andrew Lawton Show.
1: Welcome back to the show. You may remember it was about a year ago, maybe a year and a half ago, I I sat down with Tommy Robinson in the United Kingdom. Tommy Robinson being now a, a former candidate in the UKIP for the European Parliament, and ultimately someone who was subjected to that heavy arm of the state that I mentioned earlier for daring to speak out against an issue that the government was ignoring. Tommy Robinson was, for a great period of time in the last several years, the only voice speaking up about the grooming gangs across the UK, other parts of Europe as well, but in particular the UK, that were predominantly Pakistani Muslim men targeting girls, young women, raping them, trafficking them, kidnapping them, the whole operation that was happening under the nose of police, politicians, other law enforcements. And Tommy Robinson was the guy that was saying, you know what, we're not putting up with this anymore. Rough around the edges, sure. But the only guy standing up for these people and and ultimately working to expose them. Now, you fast forward to... Where we are now, Tommy Robinson was thrown in jail for contempt of court because the state didn't like that he was filming and commenting outside a courtroom on this case that the mainstream media was virtually ignoring. And you also look at how even now, even now that people know these things have happened, people know some of the names of those involved, people have seen some justice be served, the government is still trying to keep this shut. From the UK Independent, grooming gang review kept secret as Home Office claims releasing findings, quote, not in the public interest, unquote. Now, this is from Lizzie Dearden, who is the Home Affairs Correspondent for the Independent. She says that a freedom of information request was refused so that ministers, cabinet ministers in the UK, would have, quote, safe space, unquote, to discuss policy. So they've done the official research on the characteristics of grooming gangs, and they're not releasing it. Now, why could that be? What characteristics are they trying to conceal? Well, the fact is, it is not politically correct to talk about the reality of this because it is one particular religious group that is identified as being the culprit in the vast majority of these cases, and that is Islam, Muslims. And that's not to say that Muslims are violent. It's not to say that Muslims are rapists. It's to say that these rapists are Muslims. And these grooming gangs were Muslims and police have even conceded by the way that the reason these grooming gangs operated with impunity for so long is because they were Muslims and police departments didn't want to be seen as racist or Islamophobic to go in there and start doing anything about it. So it is political correctness that cost so many people their innocence and in many cases their lives political correctness that allowed these things to function for as long as they did. And even now, political correctness is protecting the culprits, the perpetrators. Why is it not in the public interest to have transparency? We're talking about 19,000 victims, at least. 19,000 victims that were identified by authorities in just one year And the Home Secretary of the UK said that there would be no no no-go areas of inquiry. This is what uh, Sajid Javid said to The Independent. No no no-go areas of inquiry. So everything was going to be open. Everything was going to be transparent. We're going to be able to see all of this and really shine the light on it to identify the problem. And now they're saying, oh, well, you know, we can't release our findings. So why not? What are you afraid of? What are you afraid of? And why is it that those 19,000 victims are less significant to you than the hundreds and thousands of just evil, malignant tumors in society that were behind this? Why are the victims not as important to protect and stand up for as the perpetrators in the eyes of the British government right now? Because this is what he said, I will not let cultural or political sensitivities get in the way of understanding the problem and doing something about it. We know that in these high-profile cases where people convicted have been disproportionately from a Pakistani background, I've instructed my officials to explore the particular context and characteristics of these types of gangs. So they've conceded they know where the problem is. Why then not allow the research to be seen? There's been nothing since then. That was almost two years ago. And the government has said absolutely nothing since then. They've given no more details, no more information. This story in The Independent revealed that the paper found the work had been completed but would only be used for internal policymaking. Now that means that they have a report that they're just going to bury, shove it a corner and never speak of again. So that if anyone challenges them on not doing anything, they can say, oh no, we spent a, a year and a half commissioning a significant report on this. Then release it. Release the report. If you don't release the report, you are proving that you actually do care more about political correctness than you do about protecting the rule of law, protecting the integrity of your towns and communities. And my goodness, this is going to be an absolute riot on the hands of the British state if they continue to do exactly what happened up until this point that led to all of those problems with the grooming gangs in the first place. If the government continues to turn a blind eye because of these cultural sensitivities that they said wouldn't play a role in this. And the interesting thing was when this started, I didn't actually go into this when I started following this case, as a cheerleader of Tommy Robinson. In fact, I I said I was quite agnostic on him. uh, Even if I think that there are some problematic parts of things he said in the past, I also recognize that he is, uh, in this particular instance, being subjected to something that is horribly unfair, horribly unjust, and horribly unproductive at the hands of the state. And I actually put my concerns about Tommy right to him. And you can go back and listen to that interview if you'd like. And I still remain convinced that it's a travesty what the British government has done to him. He has served more jail time than many of the people responsible for the grooming gangs. And some of them have been thrown away and good riddance to them as well. But there are others that have never, never been captured, where cases have not been investigated. And Tommy Robinson has served more time behind bars than many of the people who were kidnapping, raping, and just destroying the lives of young girls, not just young women, young girls across Britain. And the one thing that the government finally did is, okay, we're going to explore this, we're going to do a report, and this is now buried, shelved, never to be spoken of again. And this is supposed to be justice? political correctness is the closest thing britain has to a state constitution right now my goodness we've got to take a break when we come back more of the andrew lawton show stay tuned
0: you're tuned in to the andrew lawton show
1: Welcome back, everyone, to The Andrew Lawton Show. This story I find actually quite amusing. So Bernie Sanders did a a sit-down with Anderson Cooper on 60 Minutes, and he did the whole Mussolini made the trains run on time thing with Cuba, where he said it was unfair to say that, quote, everything is bad in Cuba, unquote. And he had talked about the literacy campaign that Fidel Castro put in and other things that Cuba has done apparently so well. And he does this just so brazenly. And, you know, for a guy who is the closest thing American political class has had to a communist, at least you can admire that he's so brazen about what he wants and what he wants to implement in the United States. But Bernie Sanders sits down and says unironically that you can't say Cuba's all bad, conceded that there was an authoritarian nature there, but ultimately said that uh, Cuba has just become such a pillar of success in so many other ways. And what was interesting is that this ended up earning... Bernie Sanders, not much love in the United States, but he was on the front page of the Cuban newspaper in a favorable way. I don't speak Spanish at all, but Grandma, or uh, maybe it's just Grandma, which is the official organ of the Central Communist Party Committee of Cuba, uh, had very favorably written about Bernie Sanders saying that he recognizes Cuba's contributions in education and health. Now, uh, of course, when he is praising a communist dictatorship, uh, the state media in that communist dictatorship is very fond of Bernie Sanders. But again, I find it very fascinating that anyone in the United States who is from Cuba, who has fled Cuba, they are just seething right now. There was actually a Miami Herald op-ed from someone who said, I went to school in Cuba under Castro. Here's what it's like Bernie Sanders from a Cuban national who talks about the cheap propagandist talking points that the American left pedals on Cuba and how that is so at odds with what she experienced and what actual Cubans experience, which is why they flee to the United States on Javex bottles. You don't risk your life fleeing a country when everything is as hunky-dory as Bernie Sanders thinks, or a lot of the leftist politicians in the West that insist Cuba is just this utopian paradise. But the thing that I find fascinating is that this guy's winning. This guy's winning. There was a time when this would be like the kooky Marianne Williamson of the primary, But Bernie Sanders is in the lead. The Democrats are completely unfazed and if anything, encouraged when he talks this way about things. So I have to unpack what's going on in American politics right now. Former Republican National Committee Chairman Michael Steele and I sat down last week when I was in Miami, actually, which has Little Havana. This is where most of the Cuban expats in America live or at the very least the first place they touched down in America. And my goodness, the riots that Well, the opposite of riots, actually. The celebrations in Miami when Fidel Castro died should give you an indication that the Bernie Sanders narrative of Cuba is not accurate. But I wanted to share my interview with former Republican National Committee Chairman Michael Steele. We talked about what things are happening in the Democrat primary heading to November when the election takes place. And we also spoke about a reform initiative that is ultimately bipartisan but could help conservatives to revamp the way Americans vote in presidential elections, embracing a national popular vote. So here's my sit down with Michael Steele. I'm sitting down with the former lieutenant governor of Maryland, also the former chairman of the Republican National Committee, Michael Steele. Michael, good to talk to you. Thanks for taking the time. It's great to be with you, Andrew. Absolutely. Good to see you, man. Let's talk first off about where we are in the course of American politics right now, because I think that it's been an eventful last four years, certainly. And as we look forward, a lot of people... I think on the left are going down that same road that we saw before 2016, which is that, uh, well, there's no way anyone can vote for Donald Trump again. And, and we have to do this. And, and then on the right, you have, I, I think, a lot of the resistance to Donald Trump from conservatives seems to have abated a bit, in my view. And I'm wondering if you'd agree with that, the people that were never Trumpers that are now, OK, well, I, I guess it's not that bad.
0: Yeah, I, I think on the first point with respect to how the left is uh, approaching this election, uh they they they're turning into a clown show i was just the tip of i think of what will be a very dangerous iceberg for them um not not just on the process size and just getting the vote out but just generally in in their uh, understanding of where the American people are, what the American people are thinking and how they feel about the upcoming election. There's a lot of uh, mixed emotion about it in some quarters and they're very strong emotions in others. There's no doubt about that. You have those who, there's no way on hell I will ever vote for Donald Trump. Um, and, and then you even have those who voted for him in 16 who have peeled off, but you still to your to your second point, and it's not just among conservatives, among center-right independents, for example, um, who are looking at this, and they are, they are making a different calculation and assessment largely based on how they see the Democrats performing. So, you know, the president, in my estimation, is in a very good position right now. Uh, he's very strong, certainly on the economy. He's over 50 plus, 52, 53 percent approval on the economy. I think that number is actually a little bit higher. Um, his job approval is at 49 percent, two points higher than Barack Obama at the same point. Um, in his first term. So I think where the president is positioned, you can say, look, uh, Mueller, impeachment, um, all helped. Um, because it it really spoke to a narrative that conservatives were saying that you go down this road on impeachment, you're going to bite off something you can't chew. And, and I think that's what's turned out. Because the American people, at the end of the day, it wasn't in their mind to sort of throw out a president. So all of these factors have played into... Where this election is at this point, the Democrats are now going through their primary process. The president is just sitting back and enjoying the moment, um, and we'll see. Um, once there is a nominee, who that nominee is will matter. How they perform in the upcoming campaign will make the difference between whether or not Democrats can recapture those bricks they took, uh, they lost out of the blue wall um, in 2016. And whether or not the president is able to build on the momentum from um, a good economy and the other things that have happened uh, and, and turn it into a victory in November you
1: mentioned that who the democrat is is a relevant question here and i was wondering if you could explain a bit more about that because right now we see the democrats uh, very much eating their own and and people that in the past would have been i think very formidable candidates uh, the more moderate among them are, are are
0: now absolute jokes to it It yeah. seems like the democrat yeah, right no you're absolutely right and and so if if they want to go if they want to go land on bernie sanders uh Thank you very much. Uh, January 21, we'll be watching Donald Trump uh, re-inaugurate, inaugurate as the end of the second term. If you want to if you want to dance with Elizabeth Warren, thank you very much. <laughs> Donald Trump will be the next president of the United States. If you want to if you decide to take the risk and go with um, uh, someone like a Bernie Sanders uh, or I mean, excuse me, a Joe Biden or or Michael Bloomberg, that's a different dynamic. Uh, you know, I've, I've I've said for a while now that the nominee of the party should be, of the Democrats, should be, if they want to be competitive. It's not a guaranteed win by no stretch, but they sh- if they want to be competitive against Trump, uh, Joe Biden is the one who, referring back to those bricks, can grab those bricks back that they lost. Uh, and that's Mich- Michigan, Wisconsin, and Pennsylvania uh, in 2016. Uh, because he has he has that innate sort of Uncle Joe charisma, people know him, they're very familiar with him uh yes, he can be a little bit out there at, on on various things, but in their mind he's stable and and the thing that a lot of I've heard voters say to me as I've traveled around the country is look i'm I'm not worried about arguing about the future of the country or the future of the democratic party or the future of the Republican party. I'm looking at someone who can take me out of this spin zone, out of this crazy space that we're in right now. I, I want a more settled presidency uh, that I can rely on and I don't have to get up and spend every day and every waking hour of that day talking about what the president's tweeted or what the president says. So people are looking for some degree of of normalcy, if you want to use that word, if I you know, go with that. But that's gonna it's gonna be a tall order for them. And, and I think that, you know, they've got to figure out whether they, want to ha- whether they want to be woke or if they want to win. Because that's, that's your only choice at this point. If you want to win, then you're going to identify that candidate. And I think they're easily identifiable who can appeal to the middle of the country, who can speak to those farmers and to those uh, blue-collar workers, to those moms who are sitting around kitchen tables trying to balance budgets with two weeks left in the, in the, in the month, Um, and and no money right so that's real life and Democrats have not been very good in my estimation at speaking to real life they speak to the ideal life you know where you know everybody's on the same page on global warming and we've got free education and we're gonna we're gonna harangue the hell out of billionaires and grab all their cash because they don't deserve it they never earned it anyway you know, it's like you hear on the on the debate stage when they look at Mike Bloomberg. Well, well there were workers that worked for you. I was like, look, dude, yes, because he employed them. You get it? He employed them.
1: <laughs> when Obama had said, I think it was 2008, you didn't build that, right. that was seen as a gaffe.
0: But now that standard Democrat policy, the fact that, well, you didn't do that, no. Right, right. No, exactly right. So there is, a, in my estimation, a, a complete misreading of the electorate that the Democrats have been um, just – they're very expert at <laughs> misreading the public. They did it with Hillary Clinton. Um, and, uh, and, and and to some extent, they did it uh, with Obama in his second term. Um, and, and that's what gave, I think, the fertile ground to, for a Donald Trump candidacy, in addition to the sheer incompetency of Republicans to actually put the finger on the pulse in, inside their own ranks to figure out exa- exactly how much uh, on the heels of the Tea Party movement. The base had shifted and why that base was still angry. Um, we had, when I was national chairman, had mitigated some of that. We had, a, I think, a very good working relationship with Tea Party um, leaders around the country. We elected a lot of their candidates, constitutional uh, conservatives to, to the Congress um, and the state legislatures. Um, some have retired since then. Um, a few have lost their seats. Um, but their frustration uh, grew anew um, after 2012, and boom, uh, Donald Trump came in and sort of picked at that wound uh, and and launched a populist, um, uh, not resurgence, but um, sort of energy that um, uh, they were like, I-, I can ride with that. And so now, even internally for the Republicans, looking either after 2020 or to after 2024, How does that ground shift further to to sort of continue the progress of electing uh, national office uh, holders, et cetera?
1: I'm actually glad you mentioned the populism, because I, I wanted to talk to you about the popular vote shift that we're seeing, mostly from the left. I, I mean, certainly the Democrats are saying they want to tear up the Electoral College. There is a, another way, and we're seeing this in Virginia, most recently in other states, uh, to have popular vote that uses the Electoral College. And I, I find it interesting, because the most of the resistance, certainly that knee-jerk resistance to electing a president by national popular vote, seems to come from Republicans, because of the old narrative that, you know, your states like New Hampshire, uh, Iowa, Wyoming are, are going to be overlooked. Uh, but I think the populism aspect is very interesting because if populism is where conservatism is headed in some
0: form, short term,
1: yeah, that, that you'd think that would actually invite or
0: welcome a popular vote. You do and you and and it should, but I think what what then clouds that um, conversation is a number of things that um, you know we've talked about, and that is um, ballot security and whether or not you know there this this new approach deals with the fraud that can and has taken place um, in elections um, in the past and not just in the past but in the recent past. Um, And also, I think there is, you know, this general idea that well, uh, are we going to be electing the opposition, you know, well, the idea of a national popular vote is that every citizen has access to the ballot, their vote will count their vote will matter. Um, and it will be a part of making a difference. You then move away from the situation that we find ourselves in where a candidate wins the, the popular vote but then loses in the electoral college because that is the way the current structure works. What we're looking at with national popular vote is sort of creating a level playing field where all 50 states are competitive. Why? Because guess what? Candidates now have to campaign in all 50 states because you're, you're building towards a national total not just winning Wisconsin. You want, yeah, you can win Wisconsin, that's fine, or you can lose Wisconsin as long as you're building a number that is strong enough to be added to what you're doing in California. Here's the other thing that I think is very important, particularly for um, those jurisdictions uh, in in the Southwest and the West, um, particularly Republican uh, jurisdictions, Um, and that is when you're in that space, all of a sudden now, when eight o'clock comes on the East Coast, they're not shut. They're not calling the election. They can't call the election because there's still three hours of votes to be tabulated and and, and counted um, in in the west in western part of the country. So for those particularly Republican um, uh, voters who are sitting on on the one on one trying to get home. Uh, or try to get to the voting polls and at eight o'clock on the East coast in the past, they, they're, you know, Oh yes, we call the race for, they turn around and go home. I'm not going to vote now because hell, they just called the race for the Democrat or they called the race for the Republican. Uh, and I'm done. Um, but now, um, you want to, you want that vote to get to the polls because that number, no matter what it is, is going to add to a national number. So when you look at these elections, There's a whole new dynamic. And Donald Trump, to his credit, um, has said and acknowledged that if there were a national popular vote in place in 16 or 20 or in any campaign he's in, he would campaign differently. He would be campaigning in states that right now are either flower states or the states that they ignore because there's no they're not a competitive a part of the uh, battleground uh, calculation
1: well and, and that works both ways i mean states that aren't battlegrounds because you know you're going to win them and states that aren't battlegrounds because you know you're going to lose them so right. and so in the end you've got uh, you know california new york which are the biggest states in the union that get no uh, real campaigning from either the
0: democrats right. or the republicans right right and, and and so to that point as an example If, you know, typically there are, I know that I'm just going to play with the numbers, so go with me here. If there are 3 million uh, Californian uh, independents and Republicans who vote for the Republican candidate in a typical presidential election, um, and you now have the opportunity where you've got a million people on their way to the polls at 5 o'clock to go, and now all of a sudden you've got 4 million now you've just added another million to your national total and if you if you and you couple that with places like new york new jersey florida ohio elsewhere all of a sudden now you can see just where you have now created margins for you to win as opposed to well okay i got three million votes in, in california whoopee um, so it, it, it for me, again, it changes the way the game is played. It is something worth looking at, and I think on the heels of the uh, certainly in the in the Democratic primary in Iowa and in, in the, in the mess that is, I mean, first off, we, let's just do away with the caucus system. Yeah. People, can we can we just be honest and say the idea that you're going to engage in the least Democratic uh, aspect of voting, where you tell people you have to be in a location between hour one and hour four. And if you're not there at hour four plus one minute, you're not there. We're going to lock you out. You can't vote. That, to me, is undemocratic.
1: And no secret ballot.
0: It's really no, the only area where there's no secrecy right. of who you're voting for. You're literally standing right, in the corner. Right. And so <laughs> talk about peer pressure. And your neighbors are, oh, you standing there for Trump? Or you standing there for Biden? Or you standing there for, you know, so it's, it's, it's ridiculous. Go go to, you know, a, a primary system. I think when I was national chairman, I advocated for a national primary Um, pick a day in April. Pick pick four weeks in April. And each week you have four region you have a regional uh, a primary over those four weeks and you're done by the end of the month and you know who your nominee is going to be. Um, and so there are a lot of options and opportunities. I think the Democrats are certainly going to look at that. I think Republicans should revisit that, as we did when I was national chairman and made some recommendations um, on how our primary should unfold um, in order to, again, the goal is to get out as many of your voters as you can't possibly can to identify new voters, um, and get them to the polls. Do you like a popular vote because you think it would favor
1: conservatives, or do you just think it would dampen a, an electoral edge that right now the Democrats have in your view under the st- under the status quo?
0: Oh, I think it favors. I think it favors conservatives. I think it 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 plays to the ideal that the, the the nation as as a whole. Um, is a center-right nation. Uh, And I think that in a lot of communities, particularly when when you're looking at minority communities, Hispanics and African Americans, the presumption is that's an automatic democratic vote. I can tell you firsthand as a black man, that's not true. I can tell you firsthand as the former uh, county chairman, state chairman in Maryland, as well as national chairman, that's not true. Um, And we have, I I believe, very fervently still within us the capacity to make the case to a cross-section of voters that uh, they will find appealing. And And this new format allows us the opportunity, again, to go into places that we have just regressed from Um, because oh, it's a blue state, you know, or we're not gonna win that state. Well, now you're gonna play and guess what guess what else is essentially important here? Going back to that California example with those million that million extra voters who decided to continue on to the polls as opposed to turning around and going home at five o'clock, that helps your down ballot. It helps your down ballot candidates as well, because now you've just added a fresh one million voters for governor and for the U.S. Senate and for, you know, county commissioner and and, and so forth. So I think for, for Republicans, we need to, you know, look at it very objectively it, it makes constitutional muster. It, 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 it meets all the constitutional requirements. It's a compact amongst the states, no different than the lottery compacts that we're very familiar with. Certainly those in the western uh, part of our nation um, who are in uh, water compacts, um, you know, uh, know what that's like if you're sharing the Colorado River. Um, so it, it's, it's, it's a form of cooperation among the states where they say, look, we're gonna agree that this body of us, that total 270 electoral votes, agree that whoever wins that national popular vote, that that grand national total, we agree to commit our our electoral votes to that candidate. Because that, why? Because that candidate will have competed in all of our states. That candidate will have competed in in most of our communities. And I think that more than anything else is how we begin to re-engage uh, citizens in the most important uh, franchise they have. Michael Steele, thank you so
1: much for chatting. Oh, really appreciate pleasure, it. Man, I really enjoyed it. Thank you. My thanks to Michael Steele and my thanks to all of you for tuning in, writing in, supporting this show in whichever way you do. We'll be back in just a few days with more of The Andrew Lawton Show. Thank you, God bless, and good day.